The Way Out Podcast, episode 364. What is your name? Dan L. Dan, what was your substance of choice or DOC if you had one? You know, my my substance of choice honestly was was not even always a substance. It was a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of marijuana. Um, I also struggled a little bit with gambling and other kind of other behaviors. So I had a whole plethora of things that I was struggling with. <laughs> a corticopia. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I think many can identify with that, Dan. For me, I very much identify with the addiction whack-a-mole. Yeah. <laughs> In that if I managed to get one sort of kind of under control or under wraps, another one would pop up and another one would pop up and another one would pop up. And it wasn't really cognizant of it at the time, but certainly in retrospect, absolutely addiction whack-a-mole. Although for me, alcohol was definitely my first love and my ultimate downfall. I think many of us can relate to having multiple addictions that were an issue for sure and i think part of mine stemmed a little bit from uh, i think all of that was a manifestation of other things that i was struggling to accept internally about myself too but we can get into that later 100 <laughs> percent, no question it, if you're anything like me the behaviors and the substances were merely an imperfect solution yes oh yes that is perfectly stated as far as i'm concerned <laughs> Dan, if you keep one, what is your clean and or sober date? I do keep one. It is January 14th of 2019. Congratulations, Dan. That's absolutely tremendous. You, sir, have over four years of continuous recovery lived one day at a time. Congratulations, sir. Thank you so much. That means a lot. It's it's a journey as as I I know you know. <laughs> Indeed. Dan, how do you serve the recovery community? You know, I mostly through my work right now, which I'm I'm I feel privileged to be able to do. Um, we uh, we'll get into this again more later, but I organize and direct our recovery community organization where we offer support groups different resources for individuals in recovery. We honor all pathways. Like I said, we'll talk more about that later, but um, being able to facilitate those groups and work with people who have been in situations uh, or, or are currently in situations uh, just like me and others that I've, I've loved and supported throughout my personal and professional life as well. So that's probably the biggest way that I give back to the recovery community or work within the recovery community. That's absolutely a tremendous way to give back to the recovery community. Dan, what is the name of the recovery community organization that you work for? We are Recovery in the Woods, and our fiscal host is Wellness in the Woods, a nonprofit organization that just celebrated 10 years in existence. That's amazing. And I recently became aware of wellness in the woods and subsequently recovery in the woods and instantly became a fan of what you all are doing for the recovery community so i cannot wait to talk about the origin story of 
Wellness in the Woods, Recovery in the Woods, and what you're doing today. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it, too. <laughs> Last opening question, Dan, what does recovery mean to you? You know, I might have one of the most succinct answers to this question, but it's important to me. Uh, recovery is hope for me. It's hope that there can be a future with happiness and success, and that can look so many different ways to so many different people. But in short, recovery is hope for me. I love that, Dan. And it is a word that means so much to so many of us in recovery because so many of us can relate to the feeling of being hopeless. And that is an awful feeling. And so to find hope in recovery for a meaningful life, for a purposeful life, for a life that we can sustain a meaningful and enduring recovery, hope is very much at the center of that. And even when life gets lifey <laughs> and we experience challenges, we experience situations that are seemingly overwhelming or difficult, recovery still gives us that hope. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I remember too, I, I hope is something that I, I sometimes feel like we take for granted throughout our, our lives in different phases and different moments and seasons of our lives, if you will. And so for me, I think that's something that I have consciously tried um, after I face planted, as I call it, fell flat on my face. Hope is something that I've tried so hard not to take for granted. The existence of hope, being able to see that light at the end of the tunnel has really provided a motivation for me when kind of, as you mentioned, in another way, it, it didn't necessarily feel like it was going to be there without it. Yeah, absolutely. And it also feels like your centering gratitude there too, being mindful and grateful for having hope in your life. Absolutely. Gratitude is a huge piece of my personal recovery journey along with that hope. And, and it's something that I know can sound cliche sometimes, but I'm going to tell you for me, uh, I have to do that. that. That's something that's kind of a non-negotiable for me. I've got to list out the things, even if it is mentally that I'm that I'm grateful for. Uh, because as you said, life can get lifey and I'm going to ask permission to steal that from you. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you can indeed steal that, my friend. <laughs> cliches are cliches for a reason because they have a lot of truth to them. And being able to center gratitude and hope on a regular basis within our recovery makes a profound difference in how we experience our days and then ultimately our lives. I totally agree. And I'll say this too, I, you know, we're not perfect. None of us are. And I think it's okay to remind ourselves that at times we aren't going to be able to find that, that gratitude or cling on to it or center it, as you say. And I think that's okay sometimes too, as long as we're able to keep it front and center as much as we can. Um, be, giving, giving ourselves permission to not 
do perfectly at all times, I think is another huge piece. Absolutely. Great point, Dan. Progress, not perfection. And we're not trying to become recovery ninjas. We're just trying to get better one day at a time, right? There, there it is. <laughs> yep. Welcome, Way Out faithful and first timers, to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this rendition of The Way Out, I'm beyond excited to bring you my interview with person in long-term recovery and chief operating officer of Wellness in the Woods, Dan L. Dan shares on his journey to and through recovery to this point about the great work Wellness in the Woods and Recovery in the Woods is doing in the recovery community in Minnesota, including, but not limited, to a peer support warm line, virtual peer support, and Recovery in the Woods meetings, all facilitated and ran by people with lived experience with either mental health diagnoses, substance use disorder, or both. These services fill a critical space in the continuum of wellness and recovery services that are not addressed by formal substance use disorder treatment organizations, otherwise known as treatment centers, and exist alongside mutual aid groups like 12-step and smart recovery meetings. Dan also shares about the pathways and tools that were and continue to be instrumental in his recovery, not the least of which is RAP or Wellness Recovery Action Plan. 
I am an unabashed and enormous fan of the work the great folks at Wellness in the Woods are doing, and I have a sneaking suspicion you all will be too once you hear the tremendous interview that's about to unfold before your very ears. So listen up. Dan L., thank you so much, brother, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. You are a person in long-term recovery. You are the chief operating officer at Wellness in the Woods, and you're here with us to share your journey to and through recovery to this point, as well as all about Wellness in the Woods and recovery in the woods, which I'm super excited about. Before we get into any of that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and we'll get started. Thank you so much, first of all, for having me. This is this is awesome. A great experience and a great opportunity to be here with you today on a, a beautiful, hot, steamy Saturday afternoon here in Minnesota. But Indeed. Uh, <laughs> I am, I, as you mentioned, my name is Dan. Um, some people call me Daniel, Dan, either way is fine. Uh, I am from the Twin Cities here. I was born and raised in, in North Minneapolis. Um, I went to school in the, in the cities. I, I actually um, grew up in, in what, I like to share this part because I think it actually sets the context a little bit, uh, but I grew up in what would be considered probably a pretty favorable position. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had everything that we needed for the most part. Um, I was fortunate enough to have support from from both my parents and my my brother, and my sister growing up. Um, I was a middle child, but I had a pretty what would I don't like to use the word normal, but I had what would be expected or called by a lot of people, I think, a pretty typical upbringing um, or favorable, I guess I would say, too. Um, Before you continue. Yep. I think it's great that you bring that up and I appreciate you bringing that up because we've had all sorts of folks on this podcast and not all of them, including you have a history of dysfunction in their family or some trauma. Not everybody that has a substance use disorder, addiction, alcoholism, comes from a dysfunctional family. It's not a requirement. It's not. It's not. And I think I, I thank you for for stopping and kind of pointing that out because that is that is why I, I include that as part of my story. And it's it's tricky to kind of navigate that and wordsmith it because you can you can probably perhaps rub people the wrong way, but that's sure. exactly my point is that we don't have to come from a quote unquote dysfunctional family scenario to have these challenges, to have these struggles. And I think it's wonderful that you've had a variety of people on this podcast from all different types of family structures and other things. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. It's no doubt in my experience, there's a high prevalence of it, but in no way, shape or form is it a requirement in order to develop a substance use disorder, an addiction, alcoholism, not a requirement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Continue, my friend. Sure. So uh, school was very important to me. Um, I was kind of a I was a, a hybrid, as I call it. Um, I, I played sports. I was really, really good at school, <laughs> at the game of school, if you will. I loved learning. I had a lot of friends. Um, things were pretty cool. Honestly, my parents were super supportive. They certainly had high expectations, 
but uh, but there was a lot of love and a lot of compassion and support there too. So again, I frame this all up because as we just mentioned, uh, nobody's immune to a face plant. <laughs> and um, it's about what you do with it, I think, is is what matters. But uh, I'll fast forward. A, a well, and bit. Dan, that mm-hmm. can keep people sick, right? Yeah. And that keep people in their disease if one has the impression or idea that in order to have a substance use disorder, childhood trauma or family dysfunction is a requirement. And if you think that, you're going to stay sick. So I think it's just super important to really stress that we can be brought up in what folks would consider idyllic circumstances and still develop a substance use disorder that manifests in a variety of different ways and that takes us out. And look, you know, I'm I'm a guy that pulls no punches. This thing can kill us. Oh yeah. And so Absolutely. we try hard on this podcast to dispel those kinds of myths. I love it. I love it. That's 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 huge, huge work uh, to be done to dispel those myths. And it's absolutely right. It can and it does kill us. Um, it, it has and it, it will continue to. And so anything we can do, I believe, to be a part of the solution or to support or walk alongside people, I think is truly an honor to be able to do that no matter where we do it or how we do it. So no question. And recovering out loud like yes. you are, Dan, sharing your story is a big part of how we do that. Absolutely. Because then other people would be like, yeah, I also didn't come from a crazy, dysfunctional family, but am struggling with substances. Maybe just maybe I'm like Dan. Yeah. You know, and maybe I can get better, too. That's the deal. Right. So. All right, Dan. So uh, you liked school. You were good at school, had a lot of friends. Family life was pretty good. What happens as you progress through high school? As I progress through middle school and high school, and then even on into college, uh, I, I do think, and, and I'll slightly derail for just a brief moment before I come back to it, is I'm a firm believer that while not always true, mental health challenges and SUD can exist together. Not for everybody, uh, of course, not for everybody, but they can and do exist together in some folks. I'm one of them problem with me was as I progressed through high school, I didn't want to believe that I was struggling with some mental health stuff as well. Uh, and for me, some of that was massive levels of anxiety, which manifested in perfectionism. I needed to be, uh, you know, I needed to get all A's. I needed to, uh, you know, absolutely make the football team. I was quarterback. I had to, uh, you know, upkeep all of these standards in my head. And what's interesting about it to me anyways, looking back is, Nobody told me I had to do that. That was all internal. Of course, we are pressured a little bit by society in different ways, no question, and the things that we see. But I just wanted to highlight that quickly, and I'm curious if you have uh, any experience with that too. But uh, for me, it was both, and it it manifested as a result of being kind of a combo platter. Absolutely. Uh, I am in that category as well, and I talk about it all the time on this podcast that 
the secret combination for me, Dan, was to address my mental health, my trauma, and my substance use disorder in parallel. Yeah. Had to do it in parallel. I tried in certain times in my life to address one without the other. And I was never successful. It never worked. It never stuck. And I truly believe addressing them in parallel was absolutely critical for me and indeed the secret combination. And on this podcast, the majority, I would say, of folks that we've had on this podcast identify as people that also struggled with some sort of mental health or trauma or both along with their substance use disorder. That's very validating to hear because I've heard I've heard the whole gamut of stories, as you can imagine. And sometimes you get in areas and people are like, no, they, they don't exist together. They're separate and should be treated as such. I personally disagree, but to each his own. Right. No, no question. Right. And yes, uh, you know, there are certain pockets, I think, of the recovery community. I think maybe more of the old schoolers <laughs> that yeah. their pathway solves everything and Honestly, though, Dan, I think that's a bit of a perversion of that program. And I'm talking about the 12 steps. Some 12 steppers have made it clear that they believe that, you know, the 12 steps solves everything. And if you're struggling, you're not working the steps hard enough or well enough and go back and work them again, which you know, in some instances might be true, but the 12 steps aren't going to cure bipolar. They're not going to resolve a massive anxiety disorder. It's not going to do that. Right. And Bill Wilson was a huge advocate of seeking outside help. He wrote it many times in the literature, conference-approved literature that one should be quick to make use of outside help in order to get well. That quote, AA is not a cure-all, end quote. So uh, we're huge advocates of integrating mental health services into your recovery, counseling, therapy, those things could be transformational for people. They were for me. I underwent a journey of EMDR therapy. Oh. And it sounds like voodoo, man, but it was the the thing for me. It turned into like a superpower in terms of how impactful it was. My mom died when I was 11, and I never really processed it. And I used a lot of other things to distract myself from it, to not really deal with it because I just at 11 years old didn't have the tools, didn't have the ability to process it. So I tucked it deep, deep, deep down and just poured a lot of alcohol on it and marijuana and other addictive behaviors and you know, ultimately when and I love your turn of phrase faceplant <laughs> ultimately when I reached my point of desperation 
I just wanted to get well. I just yeah. didn't ever want to feel like I was feeling at the end. I just didn't ever want to feel like that again. And yeah. I was willing to do whatever it took to never feel like that again. And I was extremely fortunate because my ex-wife, my third at that point i was on the back end of a third failed marriage and she kept me on her insurance long enough so that i could go to hazelden and experience world-class recovery services as well as world-class mental health services not everybody is fortunate enough to receive that kind of care. And I am acutely aware of that. I think that's going to dovetail well into our discussion around wellness in the woods and recovery in the woods. So yeah. that's cool. So there's a little tease there. But I'm incredibly grateful to my now ex-wife for keeping me on her insurance well past the point that she needed to so that I could get well on my way of wellness and recovery. And so you talk about, Dan, we understand things backwards, especially after entering recovery and getting on a wellness journey. Mentioning that anxiety that you dealt with. And I think it's extremely instructive to talk about how you channeled that into achievement. Really all of this anxious energy that you didn't know what to do with, you're channeling that straight into achievement in large part. And as a society, we celebrate that, don't we? We do. We do. For better or worse, sometimes I would. Right. I, I That's would what actually. I'm saying. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I guess um, one of the things that I realized very quickly is that I could sure seem like I was doing real well. To people around me. Um, I was able to put on that, I call it a mask, people can call it whatever they want, of course. I, I learned how to wear, decorate, create, and wear my own mask so that no one would really know how much I was struggling. Uh, but boy, when I started drinking uh, and those walls came down, that mask got a little fuzzy and it was easier to see who I was for other people. Um, which in a way, I think in, in some aspects kind of helped me, to be honest with you. Um, obviously, the drinking was not the right way for me to deal with that. That was an unfortunate um, way to kind of come to that. But it allowed certain individuals to specifically to kind of see something's not quite right. Something's I care about you and, and there's something a little bit off here and I'm worried about you. Of course, I denied it uh, and I kept on going right through college and got my first job, landed a full-time teaching job, psychology and sociology right off the bat and did that for almost 10 years. I taught for 10 years and until I finally had to resign because I was not well. I was not well and I couldn't give, I felt, what I needed to be able to give to those that I was serving in that world. And I got to tell you, that was the, to this day, the most difficult decision that I ever had to make. I bet because teaching for a lot of folks 
is less of a job and more of a calling, right? Bingo. That was for me too. I can't speak for everybody, but for, for me and for a lot of my colleagues and friends, absolutely that was the case. And I think actually, although it in many ways was the right decision for me, even though it was my calling and I, I knew I was going to miss it dearly, um, it needed to happen. And I still remain confident in that to this day, as much as it still hurts. But I also think that uh, moving on into my different my post teaching life, I did a little corporate training and then I ended up um, I, I'm a, I was a justice involved person. I, I dealt with some it, I really think that leaving and then having no real grasp on my identity other than that and yeah. uh, battling with with my own my own identity, my sexuality, everything really, really blew up internally. So talk about that point for you where things blew up internally you are now on the back end of a 10-year teaching career and you're kind of hopping from one thing to the other the anxiety i imagine is still very much at play here as well as the substances so Tell me, Dan, you know, how does that culminate into this ultimate face plan? Yeah, it's uh, that's the crux, right? That's the crux of my story and where things had to change. I had to make a choice to change. I um, without I always am a believer in, in not sharing too many um, gory details, but I um, I got myself in some trouble. I did. And I, I, I remember, I remember feeling completely out of control and, and just engaging in risky behaviors, not only with substances, but with other people and, and, you know, the promiscuity and everything, which, which really was never who I, I thought I was. And I didn't realize what I was doing. And I, I woke up one day and I was in a cell. I was in a cell. And I'd never, ever had a snitch, a stitch of problems in my life with with law enforcement or anything like that. And I remember, um, you know, trigger warning for for anybody who is maybe sensitive to, um, you know, suicidal ideation or anything like that. But um, I remember laying there and wishing and praying and doing everything I could uh, that tomorrow would not come. I remember mm. that very, very well. And I know I'm not unique in that. I know many people have been there in one way or another. Um, and I'm still grateful to this day that that wish was not answered because that is what inspired the change that I needed, including therapy, including treatment, including accepting and proudly announcing who I actually am without any fear. And this took time, of course, this wasn't an overnight process, uh, but announcing and being okay with and confident in who I am in all aspects of my life. Um, that is really what needed to happen. And I hate to say it, but it's the truth for me. Had that not happened, I don't know if I would be here today. And that's that's a fact. What a great way, Dan, to illustrate the dire circumstances that you found yourself in, both externally in terms of the external consequences, and so many of us, me included, very 
well identify with that. I don't even want to face tomorrow. Like if I don't wake up, maybe that's better. This is awful. This is horrible. I, I, I don't know how I am going to survive this. And then the internal emotional turmoil and the identity crisis, not knowing who we are, not being able to accept who we are at our core. I ran from being an addict and an alcoholic my entire adult life until I was 36 years old. Ran from it, tried to hide it, tried to manage it, tried to pretend it wasn't there, tried to convince myself and everyone else, I am not an addict. I am not an alcoholic. I do not have a problem. And... There's something very unique about that feeling of surrender to who we really are with all that it entails. It's both a relief and difficult at the same time. Absolutely. That I could not have said that any better uh, myself. And honestly, the word that comes to mind is freeing. It was very freeing to a degree. Uh, it, it let me, I, I always explain it like this. I finally felt like the 25 to 40 pound weight on my chest was lifted, but other, other weights were added in, in other ways too, because then it meant, okay, now here you are, right? Yeah. Now, now, you know, now others know, now, what are you going to do? You've, you've got to, you've got to really live and step into this space, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And uh, now I have to reckon with the fact that I got to do something different here. I got to do something about this. Now that I've accepted this, surrendered to it, use whatever turn of phrase you want to use. I got to do something here. Yes. Because there's a difference in my experience and in my understanding between surrender and acceptance and resignation. Yes. Look, I knew people and I've known plenty of people that resigned themselves to the fact that they're alcoholics or addicts and that's just the way it's going to be and they're going to just live the rest of their lives as active addict, alcoholic, substance users. That's resignation. Surrender and acceptance is different to me. That's a recognition of who I am combined with a willingness to change. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That's a huge difference to point out. And I, I love the way that you phrase that so much because it's, there is a massive difference there. And, and I think yet at the same time, those lines can blur for people, especially when caught in the throes of whatever addiction or substance use challenges they may be facing that that line can be so blurry in my experience and just listening to people, right. Walking alongside them. Uh, and then b- both before and after, right. Before they start their recovery journey during, we're never really after, um, at least in my view, we're always walking in our journey, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's profound really. And I guess the other thing I, I want to add, if that's okay, is, you know, when I started the journey, I got, I went to treatment, I received some intensive therapy. Um, I remember then when I, when I came out, I was like, I went from corporate training and teaching with a master's degree. I was delivering tires for a while. And let me be very clear. There is no no problem. There's nothing wrong with delivering tires. It's a good, honest living. It's also not for me. And it, it wasn't for me, but I had to do it to pay the bills. And I think recovery, the reason I bring this up is our identities are so wrapped up in our recovery journey too. It's almost impossible to separate it completely, at least in my experience. And so that presented a whole separate set of issues that I needed to recover from and, and realize and learn from and grow. Uh, so that piece was very, very profound for me too. No question, Dan. And I think it's really important to highlight that, especially in early recovery, we're just trying to figure out who we are. Yes. Uh, I mean, we've been engaging in escapism yeah, through our various addictions and substances of choice for however long, and many of us have no clue who we really are and who we want to be. And that's a journey in and of itself. But for me, for sure, it started with fully embracing and accepting my alcoholism and addiction and then making a decision to recover out loud and integrate that as core to my identity. And that became a superpower. Mm -hmm. This thing that I ran from for years, I was able to flip on its head and turn it into a true superpower. And that's a gift that recovery continues to give me. And then through my spiritual journey and through many other things that I've added to my program, Dan, I say I have an and program. It's 12 steps and Dharma. It's 12 steps and smart. It's 12 steps and Buddhism and the Tao. And I have been able to disentangle some of those things I needed to feel like I had to have attached to my identity in terms of what it be my corporate career or it be whatever capacity that in the end, the journey is to love and accept myself no matter what, no matter what I'm doing, if I'm delivering tires, yeah. if I'm cleaning grills if i'm a a big deal at a corporation doesn't matter like in the end 
being able to say that, you know, I'm a person in long-term recovery and my real purpose is to try to be of maximum service to the God of my understanding and the people around me on a daily basis. And there's many, many opportunities to do that. But that's the journey. And that understanding came through an evolution. I love what you just said there, Charles, if I may, too, I, I can I can very much relate to huge components of that. And and what I learned for me and kind of connecting with you on that is that delivering tires wasn't necessarily a problem for me. That was a means to an end in that moment. But what I learned very quickly is this recovery journey wasn't going to stop. There wasn't going to be an end date. And I knew for me that if I wanted to be able to continue on a successful path, I had to find work that had meaning and purpose for me. And that actually is a perfect dovetail into what led me into what I'm doing now. I started on a warm line. I had no idea, Charles, what a peer was, a mental health peer or recovery peer. I had no idea what it was, not a single clue in the world. And I said, you know what? I need to find something where I, I truly believe that I can make a difference again and have purpose in order to stay on my recovery. And working on that warm line, talking to individuals um, every night and every morning who were just struggling from, you know, with everything from they just burnt their brownies to, you know, they just uh, they use the word relapse. They relapse. I know that can be a swear word sometimes, but people use what they want to use and they needed to talk about it. That is what got me to the place where I was able to fully incorporate recovery in all parts of my life, which was very important for my sustained success. Absolutely. I love that. And I find the folks that tend to achieve meaningful and enduring recovery have integrated it into their lives in a very fundamental way. Whether that be through work, whether that be through service and volunteering, whether that be through sponsoring, but it's core to who they are and what they do on a regular basis. And that is, I think, what you're what you launched into in wellness in the woods and recovery in the woods. So before we transition to talking about that, Dan, tell me what you feel like was the game changer for you in terms of your recovery journey. Was it a specific pathway? And then as well as your mental health journey, was there a specific modality that you embarked on? Because I think for folks that are new, this kind of stuff could be really instructive to hear about specific pathways or modalities. Sure, that's a great question. And, and I don't know if I have a great answer, but I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> um, the biggest mo motivator for me ended up, at least in the first, in, in initially, my, my biggest motivator was fear. Fear that I would, now I know that's not always sustainable, but bear with me for a moment. Fear is what got the ball rolling because I knew if I continued down the path that I was on, I would either end up dead or incarcerated for a long period of time. 
uh, or off and on throughout the rest of my life, whatever that might look like. So initially it was fear, but the second piece and the most important piece that really got me on track was the idea of finding purpose and making myself accountable to my own recovery by making sure that not only was I showing up for myself every day, but I had to find that purpose where someone else or another group or an organization, like you said, whether it be through volunteerism, in my case, it was work, someone else needed me to or relied on me in some way. So it was kind of, and then there's a whole separate piece that I found out later. I'm a very big believer in the wellness recovery action plan. I don't know if you've heard of that, um, but rap is something that I learned about in this journey that has helped me very much as well. So it's kind of a, a combination of all of those things that really was, was the turning point and what has kept me on the right path. Yeah. So that totally makes sense. And fear can be a wonderful way to get started. And like you said, generally not sustainable, but if it gets us started, then it gets us started. And look, I had a healthy dose of fear coming in to recovery again i didn't ever want to feel like i had been feeling ever again ever and that was a negative emotion <laughs> yeah. that drove me into i need to get better but it was a negative emotion driving that it's not today and negative emotions don't drive my recovery today right but they sure did in the beginning yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you shared that, too, because, again, for me, fear was the beginning factor. And I'd be lying to you and, and the audience if I said that I'd still occasionally don't have elements of fear that mm -hmm. pop up. You know, I mean, that uh, to me, that's human nature, but yeah. it's not it's not the thing that's keeping me going at this point. And I should also say that I left out um, my therapy. And, and again, some things work for, for some and some things don't work for others. And it's about finding what works best for you. We, with my work, uh, we very much honor all pathways. It sounds like you very much do too on this yes. podcast. And, and I very much believe in that, but I will give credit my therapist who also uh, kind of co-directed or co-facilitated my treatment um, absolutely equipped me with some tools uh, that were instrumental and continue to be instrumental. Some of them are cognitive adjustments. Some of them was uh, DBT uh, skills. Uh, a lot of that stuff really has played into what really has made the biggest differences for me. But fear was the was the initial one. I've got to be honest. Yep. Yeah, I love that, Dan. And yes, we're huge advocates that all pathways to recovery matter they're all valid if they work for you yeah. and so we're not a podcast that says that you got to do it one way and if you don't do it that way you're doing it wrong <laughs> we're not that podcast i'm in good company indeed <laughs> and i'm a huge fan of dbt mm -hmm. and cognitive behavioral therapy as well and integrating those things into your recovery as they make sense for you. Yeah. As well as availing yourself to the wide array of recovery pathways and tools that are out there. You talked about RAP, which is Wellness and Recovery Action Plan. Is that correct? Yep. Wellness Recovery Action Plan. Yep. Wellness Recovery Action Plan. So 
Tell me about that, Dan. What is rap? Yeah, rap is something that uh, Mary Ellen Copeland and uh, from the Copeland Center created years ago. And it was introduced to me when I started with Wellness in the Woods, actually. What it really is, the easiest way to describe it, is having a plan for your everyday maintenance. Also, noticing and recognizing and identifying your early warning signs and then also the signs that things are getting worse and then having action plans as well as a crisis plan for if and when you do lose control someone will be there who you have chosen you've you've written this plan it's yours it's totally customizable um and and it's it's something that somebody else can actually take and have and help you with if you get to a crisis point. And for me, if I were to to begin using again or begin uh, struggling with some of the addiction challenges that I had, for me, that would be crisis. And my people and who have that plan for me know exactly what they need to do uh, at that point. It's, it's basically making sure that you have a plan and that you're monitoring things routinely for yourself to make sure you, you get well and stay well. I love that because it really centers two really critical elements of meaningful and enduring recovery, which is what am I doing today in order to ensure that my recovery is vibrant and healthy? And if it isn't, that's the, this is the second item, if it isn't, what do I do? That's exactly it. And having a plan is so powerful because one of the big things that I, I, I'm a rap facilitator, I've, I've, I've done that several, several times for a couple of years now. And one of the things we emphasize all the time is we want to focus on being responsive, not reactive. And I think that very much fits nicely into the recovery world too. No question. And we could take that fundamental principle of responsiveness versus reaction in all sorts of different ways, but it's certainly something that has been a key area of focus for me in my recovery journey is continuing to learn how to respond appropriately versus react inappropriately based on my default mode. And that reaction often is one that is centered in fear and centered in self-protection. And that reaction ultimately has served to keep me sick for a long time. So, you know, really focusing on how do I want to respond yeah. to these kinds of situations versus allowing myself just to react? And it isn't always easy, may I say. It isn't, it isn't always easy, and I share that with you, and I, I'm a big proponent of emotions are not things that we should be ashamed of or try to bury, and, not but, and sometimes when we react with emotion, we don't serve ourselves very well. Um, especially in that reactionary space. So um, I'm, I'm also validated to hear you say that that's at least a part of your journey too, Charles. Indeed, and I love your and. That is very DBT. Yeah. 
Yeah. It is. So your DBT is showing, which is great. <laughs> I love that. This and that. These seemingly diametrically opposed things can exist in the same space. I want to do X and I have a choice to do something different. I have the ability to choose a different action. And, and both again, of those things are, are in that and, right? I, absolutely. You, you said it better than I could have. I mean, that's, that is something. And again, I must say, as I just said, it isn't always easy to do that. However, I believe truly from the bottom of my heart, there's power in that. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of, again, mental discipline and, and really working through these issues. I mean, life gets lifey to bring it all the way full circle. <laughs> you got it, Dan. It certainly does get lifey on us, whether we like it or not. That's right. Dan, tell me about wellness in the woods and recovery in the woods. What was the impetus for such a fine organization what kinds of things does Wellness in the Woods and Recovery in the Woods do for folks in recovery? Well, thank you for the kind words, first of all. We, we, I and we certainly appreciate that. Uh, we, first of all, I'll just say our, our director, our executive director, uh, Jody Freiholtz London, started this organization a little over 10 years ago now. And it was born actually out of all the different um, organizations that she had worked for previously that crumbled that she was just a part of because of fraud or whatever the case. And she was left without a job. Um, and she said, you know, one day she came home and said to her husband, I want to start my own nonprofit and I want to do it the right way. There's not going to be fraud. We want to support people and we want to do it with a peer run model. So that leads me to say we are completely and totally a peer run organization. And for those of you out there who may not know what that means, many, many of you might, um, a peer a peer run organization is one where every single individual including our board of directors identifies as an individual with a lived experience and for some of us that's mental health challenges uh for some of us that's sud substance use issues and for some of us including myself it's a combination of of both additionally that that involves individuals who uh, have spent time incarcerated and have transitioned and are in reentry uh it means a lot of different things but the biggest piece of it is that Everybody who works for Wellness in the Woods has a lived experience because we do believe that while it's not the only way to support people, it's one of the most effective ways to walk alongside people in whatever they're facing in their lives. So that's a little brief background of what Wellness in the Woods is and where it came from, how it started. And then if you don't mind, you said, you mind if I share a little bit of what we offer? Yeah, please do. So it, it really started, our kind of our cornerstone program was the warm line. And again, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, think of a crisis line, but a step before crisis. So the individuals that we serve on the warm line are not necessarily uh, contemplating suicide or having suicidal ideation or in a crisis of, of any form that you can imagine. Our goal is to get to people before they reach that spot, before they have to go to the ER, before they have to call the police or get in an ambulance. Um, 
and and really that that has been the cornerstone. We have over 2,500 interactions a month on our warm line that is open from 5 p.m to 9 a.m. every single day, 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. every single day. And it's been so fun. That's where I started, actually. I mentioned earlier, I started on the warm line and I was working many, many hours, kind of wonky hours at times, but it really is what gave me the the purpose back in my life to sustain that recovery journey. So that's one of the big services that we do offer. Um, and then another service we have that was kind of born out of COVID, actually, uh, the pandemic, is the virtual peer support network. And that is a service where you can actually hop on a Zoom every day, again, 365 days a year, doesn't matter if it's a holiday or your birthday, whatever it is, you hop on and it's from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. And there's a calendar of events that we offer. We have cultural sessions where people from varying different cultures, religions come in and talk about their their life and, and their experiences. We have LGBTQ plus sessions. We have game days. We have all sorts of different programming on that. Uh, and it's just a, a simple Zoom link that you can go on and click every single day from 10 to 4. And we're actually uh, maybe uh, breaking news for the first time and here and this the way out podcast we are actually looking to extend that and we are going to be in the next couple weeks here from nine to five which would mean we have 24 hour a day peer support every single day oh i love that dan and it sounds like y'all were doing the peer support model before the peer support was a model <laughs> i think jody had some foresight on that and certainly we've learned a lot over the years and we've all many of us have been become certified peer support specialists but yes there were certainly elements of intentional peer support going on before it got to be as big as i believe it is now a hundred percent and i myself am a certified peer recovery specialist so i am indeed a huge advocate of the peer support model goes a long way in breaking down so many of the barriers yes. folks have when first entering recovery, knowing that the individual that they are working with has a lived experience with the same fundamental issue that they're dealing with the details are different and the circumstances are different but in the end it's a tremendous value to be in community and working with folks that have similar lived experience I think that was so well said. I, I I really agree with you there. And you know, one thing I have found, and I think we as an organization, I always hesitate to speak for other people, but I, I'm pretty confident in this, that we have found we're not as peers and not just in our organization, peers across the state, across the country, we're not trying to replace or take over for you know more clinical professionals like therapists and social workers and etc doctors we are trying to fill in gaps that's all we're trying to do and i think you nailed it uh for us 
we have seen the walls come down when you know that you're getting support from someone who's been through it too. And there is a difference there. There really is a difference. And it certainly doesn't mean that more clinical professionals don't have a lived experience. In fact, many, many, many do. But I think the key difference is that title, that that title that that your professional or a clinical, if you will, more clinical support gets in the way sometimes and, and really, really struggles. Uh, people struggle, I should say, sometimes to to let their their walls down and really receive that support and walk alongside you. Absolutely. And there will always be a space for clinicians yes. and for what I would term as professional recovery care versus peer support. And they fit in a continuum. Yes. Absolutely. There's always going to be that space. I, I I think that's one of the biggest things that we've we've really learned to appreciate is that there is space and there always will be for all of us. And why wouldn't we all do what we can to support one another? Because we we need it. We all need it. No question. Time. Absolutely. And look, professionals are there to treat addiction and substance use disorder. That's what they do. They treat the disorder. And that is always going to be really important and really essential for many, many people. I received that kind of care and am profoundly grateful for it. And my recovery simply wouldn't be possible without peer support and without mutual aid groups like the 12 steps. They're not mutually exclusive. Yes. And and I, I thank you for saying that. And, and it sounds like your podcast does that. I want to get that message out to as many people as possible. And it, I thank you for giving that message on this podcast because it isn't, it isn't common knowledge. I have learned not everybody knows this. And, um, so it's a it's a privilege to to be able to share this information and to do this work. It really is. And um, I just I wanted to share, if that's OK, too, a little bit about recovery in the woods, if that's OK, before. Yes, we... please. And I want to. So, yes, I want to talk about that. I, I wanted to just call out the warm line. What a great service. And so if there's folks that are feeling like they could benefit from the warm line or from the Zoom Check the show notes right now, the information to get connected to the warm line and to get connected to the Zoom are in the show notes. So check that out right now. Dan, tell us all about recovery in the woods. Thank you so much for that. So recovery in the woods uh, was was born in uh, late December of 2022. So we are pretty much brand spanking new as a recovery community organization. Um, and what our goal is, we want to break down the silos that have traditionally existed between mental health challenges and substance use disorder. We've talked already today a little bit about that on this podcast, which is awesome. That's, that's something I'm very passionate about. And so in the way of services, we offer every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday night 
in the evening. So something a little different than say the warm line or VPSN, we offer recovery themed support. Every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m., we have a program, a support program called World of Reentry. It's for individuals or their families and or their families who are transitioning out of corrections and are just trying to get back on their feet and need people who have that lived experience to say, you know what, it isn't the same for me as it was prior to my stint in jail or prison. And I need to be around people virtually or, you know, and sometimes we do in person as well, who who get that and who understand what resources are out there and who can walk alongside me. You hear me say that a lot because that's what the real core of what the work is that we do, walking alongside people. And that is Monday night's world of reentry focused on transitioning out of corrections. Wednesday night is five stages. That is 6 to 7 p.m. as well. That is focusing on the five stages of change as it pertains to someone's recovery journey. It doesn't matter if it's a substance. It can be a process addiction. It can be other addiction challenges, and it can be substance use disorder. That hour every Wednesday evening is support, again, free of charge for people to jump in and just simply be with people in an all-recovery format who get it and who understand what it is to be in recovery. The last one I mentioned, Friday night, we call it Friday Night Freedom. That is from 6 to 8 p.m. And that is also an all recovery model. And that has been going on for quite some time. We just put it under the purview of Recovery in the Woods recently. And that is well attended. It's it's our longest running support group, if you will. Um, and that is something that uh, we have some wonderful facilitators, which leads me to my final point on those three evenings. Every single night, at least one of our co-facilitators has a lived experience with the issue being discussed, which as we just talked about is so important. So that is that is Recovery in the Woods virtual support. We also host at least four to six live recovery events all across Minnesota every year. And you can find out more about that, it sounds like in the description of this podcast or at www.mnwitw.org. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm gonna shout out that website one more time. Also, check the show notes because all of the information that Dan just provided is in the show notes. MNWITW.org. And then again, check the show notes for info about the warm line, the virtual peer support network, world of reentry, five stages in the all recovery meeting. All of that is absolutely tremendous. Dan, are you ready for our closing questions? I'm ready. We are big recovery routine geeks on this podcast. So in the spirit of that, Dan, what does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? That's a great question. For me, it's pretty straightforward, but I have to follow it, right? Otherwise, I can run the risk of falling out of order. It goes as part of my daily maintenance plan as part of my wrap. And that is I must wake up every single morning. I have to take a shower in the morning. I've got to brush my teeth and I've got to have a cup of coffee. If I do those things, I know that I am on the right track. And then I'm going to throw in another caveat and I'll, I'll, I'll risk being mocked here. But I've also have to I have to give at least a text or a phone call to my folks every day just to check in with them as well. That's a huge piece of my recovery, too. I love that. You got community and you got connection and you got self-care 
in there and the all important coffee, which <laughs> brother from another mother, gotta have my coffee. It's like literally yeah. the only thing I have left. So yeah, no. There's that. I love it. That's tremendous, Dan. Dan, what book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery? Ooh, that's a tough one. Book or recovery literature. I would have to say that there is a segment in the Wellness Recovery Action Plan book, the small like how-to book that was profound to me. And so I'll, I'll just, I'll say that it's Wellness Recovery Action Plan. It really spelled out for me what I kind of have been needing to do my whole life. So I know that's not a sexy answer, but it was, and it's more like informational, but that for me played the biggest, biggest role in getting something on paper that I can absolutely share with people I love in my circle that gave me something to hold myself accountable with that's tangible. I love that. I think that's great. That's why we say book or piece of recovery literature, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, for different people, different things are going to be really impactful. And I agree with you. And if I actually, another one, I know this is kind of cheating, but uh, Mindset, the, the book Mindset by Carol Dweck is another big one. I, I highly recommend it. That's a way out podcast first. Mindset. So that's great. As well as the Wellness Recovery Action Plan. Both of those are tremendous. Dan, what is the best piece of advice you've received in a recovery thus far? Oh, a lot. Oh, there's been a lot. I would say the best piece of advice I've received is that my recovery is my choice and my recovery has to work for me. I don't need to fit in a box. And if someone tries to make me fit in a box, it might be a good sign that it's not the best fit for me, whatever they're spewing. So I would say that that's probably been the best advice I've received. And I try to share that advice with others too. Absolutely. That's great. It's a lot like the take what you need, take what you want and leave the rest. Which... Yeah, uh, we say that on this podcast, like, take what you want from this. Yeah. Take what helps you. And the stuff that doesn't fit, that doesn't help you, that's okay. That's not for you, and that's okay. Yes. I love that. I absolutely love that. Dan, what is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far? The greatest challenge I've had in recovery thus far would have to be accepting that while being in recovery, I am not going to be perfect and I'm not expected to be perfect. And that connects to my earlier story when I was introducing myself. Perfectionism driven and manifesting from a lot of anxiety makes that challenging sometimes. And so when I do slip up a little bit, or when I do make a mistake, or maybe even when I'm helping or supporting someone and I don't use exactly the words that I wanted to use or that were the most appropriate words, I can be really hard on myself. And 
that brings me to to that that being the most challenging piece is accepting and understanding that I do not have to be perfect and no one is should be expecting me to be perfect. That's my most challenging piece. I think that's great, Dan. And I think a lot of us have similar experience around perfectionism and achievement and can be incredibly hard on ourselves if we fail or make a mistake or don't live up to the expectations we've set for ourselves. Like I just had that conversation with my youngest son who ain't that young anymore, but that's beside the point. Like <laughs> in recovery, I learned to treat myself better. Mm-hmm. And I only learned that from you all, from my fellows in recovery. And the saying, I, I think about it this way I would never treat somebody else like that. Or would I screw up and say, You dumb MFer? You dumb MFer. What good are you? Like, I would never, ever treat somebody that I care about or love that way, let alone like like anybody. But yet, somehow, I'm allowing myself to treat me that way. The way you frame that, I think, is more powerful than any other way I've heard it, to be honest with you. we I, I so relate to that. We do. We, we would never treat other people that way. So why on earth are we treating ourselves that way? And yet it's still the most challenging piece of my recovery. No question. And so we have an opportunity then, Dan, to continue to treat ourselves better. Yes, we do. And that's the magic right there. I have an opportunity to treat myself better. Yeah. And that's a journey. And that's progress, not perfection. There it is. (laughs) Dan, what is your greatest success in recovery thus far? Oh, boy. I would say, honestly, I'm honored and privileged to have climbed the ladder in my organization and, and kind of get back on my feet. I'm moving back into my house that I bought forever ago that I couldn't afford to live in forever. So I've been renting it out. All those things are great. But you know what the biggest success in my recovery journey is to this date is successfully rebuilding those precious, important relationships that I so damaged when I was face planting and being able to foster healthy, happy connections with so many of those people. Again, that has to be what I choose despite other successes. That's it for me. I love it. And that reminds me, Dan, of the difference between the prizes versus the stuff that really matters. Yes. Meaningful relationships with the people that we care about most. Yeah. The prizes are great. Getting the house back, that's great. The cars, the titles, all good stuff as far as they go but the stuff that really matters that's love and 
real compassion and care for the people that matter most to us and being invested in those relationships and having those relationships continue to improve and grow. Absolutely. The other things can be replaced, maybe not exactly, but we can get other versions of them. It may not be as good or, or as pricey or whatever, but we can't always, in fact, I would argue we can never fully replace certain people in our lives and the, and those relationships are not always replaceable either. So yeah, that's, that's gotta be my, my answer. I love it. Dan, the next one's a doozy. And then we end with a fun one. You ready? I'm ready. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? That is a fantastic question. And I think an important one. I still, to this day, have not been able to find a way to fully, I'm working on it, but to fully forgive myself for the pain that I caused so many people who genuinely and authentically loved and cared about me when I was in the throes of the mess that I was at that time. That's not who I am anymore. I own that and I'm proud of that. And I've started to forgive myself. Otherwise, I wouldn't be as far along in my recovery journey as I am. But that being said, I'd be lying to you if I said that I've fully forgiven myself for the pain that I've caused others who who I still to this day, some of them are out of my life for good. Uh, and those relationships have been terminated uh, permanently. And that's okay too. But that would be the thing that I, I've still struggled to forgive myself for. And that's a process. Yeah. Forgiveness, especially of ourselves. For me, I can very much relate to that. And my 12-step journey was really instrumental in assisting with that process of making amends and then ultimately really making amends with myself in that process. If I'm getting right with you about how I've harmed you, then you know, ultimately, I'm getting right with myself, too, right? But that's such a process. And even working those 12 steps in order with a sponsor, there's still some of that. I'm just not going to lie and say that it's all 100% gone. It's not. And it comes back up into my consciousness from time to time. And that's what I have to remind myself that it's a process. And that I can forgive myself again and I can let it go again and I can extend myself that grace again. It's a practice and it's a process. I love that. A process, a practice and a process. I love that. And, you know, the other thing is I there's a saying that I use and I didn't make it up. I don't get credit for it, but I use it all the time and I don't have to be a prisoner of my past. And if I'm going to be a prisoner of my past, it is at least in part my choice to do so. Um, so I'm working on this. I love that you said that it's, it is a practice and a process. Absolutely. I love it. Dan, here's the fun one. What song symbolizes recovery to you? Wow. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I could go so many different directions <laughs> and, and what I'm going to go with, and this, if anybody is out there listening, who happens to know me and, and, who, who I was back in the day um, and what this song means to me on so many levels, I am going to go with the song Rise Up. Andra Day, Rise Up. 
That's tremendous. And a Way Out podcast first. Rise Up by Andra Day. I always listen to it when I'm putting the final touches of the episode together. So I can't wait to listen to Rise Up. Check the show notes right now for a handy link to that song, as well as our curated Spotify playlist that has all of the recommendations of all of the peeps that have been on the Way Out podcast. And this is on there now, too. In the show notes is a handy link to Wellness in the Woods and Recovery in the Woods with all of the great and meaningful services that you all provide, Dan, the Warm Line, the Virtual Peer Support Network, World of Reentry, Five Stages, and your all-recovery meeting. Dan, brother, thank you so much for sharing your journey to and through recovery to this point with us. It's been absolutely phenomenal. I've enjoyed this conversation so much, and that's exactly what it felt like to me the whole time. What you're doing, you've gained a new subscriber in me, and I appreciate you inviting me on this show. This has been a blast. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land for your ears. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.